I invite you to turn in your Bibles or the Pew Bible to the text for this morning's message, which is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 15 through 21. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'll be starting in verse 15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Therefore I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere, in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love, in a spirit of gentleness? I think it would be good if we just bowed one more time and asked God's blessing on the message. Father, as we begin a new decade in the Word, we want to, as a congregation, bow and acknowledge that your Word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, bone and marrow, laying bare the secret things of the heart, opening us before the one with whom we have to do, never returning void. Oh, give us a heart for your word and a heart for your spirit's work. Anoint this message beyond its worth with your gracious presence and power, I pray. For the salvation of sinners and for the building up of your beloved body, the church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We begin a new series this morning that will probably take us to the middle of April. And it is entitled, Compassion, Power, and the Kingdom of God, and is unusual in two regards. First, it is directly related to things that God seems to be doing in the world. It's related to an effort to search the scriptures concerning the rising tide of worldwide attention to the gifts of healing, the gifts of prophecy, signs and wonders, personal spiritual warfare, territorial spiritual warfare, and power evangelism. Are these things of God? Are they biblical? Has has God begun to draw us into a level of warfare in such a way that it demands greater discernment and greater seeking of power than we've known? The second way the series is unusual is that it will coordinate with the plenary session on Wednesday nights. For the next three terms of BITC, the plenary session will be coordinated with the Sunday morning message. It will be a continuation and development on the themes and an opportunity of discussion and later on probably practical involvement in prayer. 
Today's message is just an introduction, unusual in that regard. I want to just raise a lot of issues and a lot of questions and talk about a lot of things. I want to talk about how the world, God's movement in it, and our experience of it is raising the questions we are going to address, and how this text and the Bible raises the questions we're going to be addressing. So let's go first to what God seems to be doing in the world. The first Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization was in 1974 in Lausanne, Switzerland. And until now, everyone has agreed that the most remarkable upshot of that Congress has been the almost worldwide renewed focus of mission agencies upon unreached peoples. You see, up until 1974, that concept was simply not on anybody's front burner, or very few people, I should say. In 1974, Ralph Winter in Lausanne, Switzerland, sounded an amazing bell, namely that 90% of the world's missionaries are working among people groups that already have a church planted in them, and that 10% of the world's missionaries, are working among 17,000, now they say 12,000 people groups that have no church at all. And he said, what an imbalance. And for 15 years, he tried to build the U.S. Center for World Missions, and still is, and now virtually every mission agency is thinking in terms of hidden peoples. It is a remarkable, historic turn in the history of world missions. And I say up until now, that has considered to be probably the most remarkable effect of Lausanne 1. But at Lausanne 2, something else was sounded. And Peter Wagner of the Fuller School of World Mission pointed out to those of us who were there in Manila last July that It may be that history will show that something else in history is happening that owes its strength in large measure to Lausanne 1 that nobody has perceived as connected to Lausanne 1 until now. Namely, two sentences in the Lausanne Covenant that was drafted by John Stott Francis Schaeffer and others, and was signed by Billy Graham and thousands of others like him. The sentences went like this. Article 14, entitled, The Power of the Holy Spirit. We therefore call upon all Christians to pray for such a visitation of the sovereign Spirit of God, that all his fruit may appear in all his people, and that all his gifts may enrich the body of Christ. Only then will the whole church become a fit instrument in the hands of God, that the whole earth may hear his voice. Tucked away in the Lausanne Covenant that has spread all over the world and has provided the basis, for example, here in our own city of Prayer 89. 
is the call to prayer for all the gifts to enrich the body of Christ. Now, many Christians today do not believe that all the gifts are for today. They're called cessationists. It's usually associated with dispensationalism and some forms of reform teaching. They would say that the sign gifts like prophecy, healing, miracles, tongues ended with the apostolic age and have no relevance for the church today. And where they are exercised or pursued, it's a sign of false teaching and a misdirected zeal. Now, the Lausanne Covenant did not share that view. And the remarkable thing about these sentences is that the prayer for all the gifts to enrich the body of Christ is connected in the last sentence of this article with, only then will the whole church become a fit instrument in his hands, that the whole earth may hear his voice. And what Peter Wagner pointed out at Lausanne 2 is that, in fact, it appears that most of the remarkable breakthroughs today in the world, in world missions and church growth, are happening among people who pray like that. Who pray for all the gifts and all the power that God gave in the New Testament. Now, this movement can hardly be labeled anymore. It is not merely Pentecostal. It is not merely charismatic. It belongs to no one denomination. It belongs to no one group of denominations. It is not tied to one theology. It crosses the bounds of Wesleyanism and Calvinism. And whatever one thinks of it, it simply cannot be ignored anymore, simply from the standpoint of statistics. In 1945, there were about 16 million people who would fall into this category of people who pursue and embrace all the gifts of God and all the power that he was demonstrating in the New Testament. In 1965, that number had grown to 50 million. In 1975, 97 million. In 1980, a remarkable leap to 268 million. In 1989, 351 million, which means that one out of every five professing Christians in the world belongs to this group. And if you took just evangelicals, the people who believe in the authority of God's word, believe in the necessity of a new birth, believe in world missions, the percentage would be far higher than 20%. Three weeks ago, I was invited by Peter Wagner to come to a post-Lausanne II consultation on cosmic level spiritual warfare a one-day conference in Pasadena on February 11, which I accepted. Thirty people are going to be gathering there to discuss 
one dimension of what God is doing. Let me try to illustrate for you the kind of thing we'll be talking about. And this is one piece, and I'll give you several other pieces of what seems to be happening as a result of the Lausanne call to the church to pray for all the gifts and all the power that all the gospel might reach all the world. More and more people today are talking and taking seriously the reality of Satan and demonic forces in the world, especially as they regard world missions. People are asking questions like this. Is the fact that 2 Corinthians 4.4 says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers? In other words, Satan is actively involved in blinding unbelievers from believing. Does that have any relevance to determining the strategy of our evangelism? Should we more directly attack Satan at the point of our evangelism, since he, and not just inveterate unbelief in me, is blinding eyes? Question number two. When you read Ephesians 6, 12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, world rulers of this present darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Might that imply that there's a hierarchy of demonic beings, some of whom might be assigned to territories to darken that territory? Now, Frank Peretti, in his books, This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness, have popularized this notion in fiction. But this group of 30 people that are gathering in Pasadena on February 11 are dead in earnest about the reality of this and frightened about it. There are many people who know of this who won't touch it with a 10-foot pole because of the reality of the demonic and his ability to strike people dead. But let me give you an illustration in Argentina of the way one mission agency is proceeding along these lines. In the fall of 1984, a group of pastors and leaders gathered in the San Nicolas Rosario area of Argentina. They gathered to discuss and pray about spiritual warfare. And what prompted this gathering was the realization that within 100 miles of this place... There were 109 towns with absolutely no Christian witness at all. They did some preliminary studies and they found out that Arroyo Seco appeared to be the satanic seat, the seat of satanic activity in that region because for long years a warlock, a, a, a sorcerer, a male witch, worked there named Mr. Merigildo. He operated out of this town. When he died, apparently he passed on his satanic, occultic powers to 12 disciples. And they lived there, and they worked there. Three times a church was planted in Arroyo Seco, and three times it died because of unusual satanic oppression. After several days of study, this group decided that they should exercise some spiritual authority through prayer. And they placed the entire area over these 109 towns under spiritual authority and besought the Lord for a long time. A few of them traveled to Arroyo Seco and positioning themselves across the street from where these 
followers of Meregildo worked, they served eviction notice on the powers of the devil and evil. And they announced that in the name of Jesus, they were defeated, and that henceforth Jesus Christ, because of the united prayers of the church, would be gathering for himself a people among these towns. And in the next three years, at least as of the end of 87, 82 of those towns now have Christian witness in them, churches. And according to what I just read, and uh, if you want to buy the manuscript of this message, you can get the footnotes and everything and write for the first-hand reports. There is a witness for God in all of these towns. In other words, unusual breakthroughs in world missions are increasingly being associated with power encounters, with uh, territorial and individual spiritual warfare. Here's another example of the kind of thing we're going to be talking about. Um, Power evangelism is a term that's now being popularized by John Wimber, who's the pastor of a church in uh, Anaheim, California, named The Vineyard. The Vineyard, by the way, um, begun about 10 years ago, now has 276 churches across the country. He has uh, shown, tried to show in his book, Power Evangelism, that almost every instance in the New Testament of successful evangelism is accompanied by a demonstration of supernatural power, either in the form of uh, a healing or an exorcism, or prophecy, or resurrection from the dead, or speaking in a foreign language, miraculously. And his point is simply this. Um, This dimension of New Testament evangelism is absent in the Western world for no good reason. That's the thesis of the book. It's absent for no good reason. These confirming miracles, uh, called he calls them signs and wonders, because that's what they're called in the New Testament, have a valuable function, he says, uh, not in any way to replace the verbal spoken gospel, but rather to create a more open hearing and to confirm it, which is what Acts 14.3 says. Acts 14.3 says, So Paul and Barnabas remained for a long time, at Iconium, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. In other words, when the apostle speaks words, the Lord did signs to witness to the word of the apostle. That's the pattern that Wimber says should be more and more present in the church's evangelism. And one of the reasons he believes we are as weak and ineffective as we are. Another example of the kind of thing we're going to be talking about is the increased use and interest in the gift of prophecy. Uh, Wayne Grudem is a friend of mine, and he taught at Bethel for, I think, three years while I was there. And then we went our separate ways. He became professor of theology down at Trinity Divinity School, and I came to Bethlehem in 1980. He's a precious friend, and he is uh, an ordained minister. He grew up in the Baptist General Conference. He is uh, more devoted to the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture than anybody I know. 
He is a thoroughgoing Calvinist and yet has written a book called The Gift of Prophecy in the Church and Today, in which he argues that prophecy, the gift of prophecy in the New Testament, is very different from the prophecy of the inspired Old Testament prophets, which was infallible. The inspiration of the very words that came out of their mouth. And it's different from the apostolic word in the New Testament, which is also inspired and infallible. And he defines the gift of prophecy like this. It is telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind, the telling of which is not infallible. But rather, as 1 Thessalonians 5 says, do not despise prophesying, but test all things and hold fast to that which is good. Implying that the New Testament gift of prophecy in no way implies divine infallibility. Anybody that stands up in the church today and says, thus saith the Lord, and does not quote scripture, should not be thought to be infallible but rather to be tested. And having said that, he goes on to argue that the gift of prophecy in no way has ceased and ought to be embraced and used for the health and good of the church. It says in 1 Corinthians 4, 3, that those who prophesy speak to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. Now, J.I. Packer, who is a cherished teacher for many of us, written the book, Knowing God, was our first speaker at the pastor's conference here, writes of Wayne's book, this book is careful, thorough, and convincing. So Packer shares this view as well. Now, we have to come to terms with these kind of things if we are going to be like the Bereans and not like the other people, the Thessalonians. Remember the Bereans, when Paul preached, says they were more noble than the Thessalonians because they went home and opened their Bibles to see if these things were so. We have to come to terms with these things in order to be biblically faithful, biblically faithful, and to be biblically obedient. So that's the summary of a few of the cluster of issues that I will be addressing on Sunday morning and that we will be discussing and working with on Wednesday night. Now I turn to the text, and I want to... Let the text open up another series of questions for us and show you how the Bible itself, and not just the experience that we're having today in world missions and evangelism, is raising these kinds of questions for us. The text is 1 Corinthians 4, especially verse 20. And uh, as you noticed, as John read, there are some puffed-up opponents of Paul at Corinth and Paul himself is not the least persuaded that there's any kingdom power in this puff. He doesn't think there's any kingdom power in this puffed-up group. And so he says, in verse 20, The kingdom does not consist in talk, but in power. And that raises at least two questions for us. First of all, what's the nature of the kingdom of God? Right here, the kingdom of God seems to be a present demonstration of power, doesn't it? But two chapters later, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, it seems to be a future realm out there that we could enter into someday. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
So which is it? Is it a realm to be inherited, or is it a power now to be exercised? Another is... Uh, What about this power? What kind of power is meant here? The kingdom of God is not talk, preaching, sharing, conversation, religious mumbo-jumbo. It's power. And Paul said in 2 Timothy, I might not have the verse right here, 4-3, in the last days will come those who affirm the form of religion but deny power in it. What kind of power is being meant here? Is it the power of 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and 5 where the same point is made? My speech and my message were not in plausible words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of a man, but in the power of God. Or is it perhaps the power of 1 Corinthians 5, 4? Just a few verses later, when you are gathered, my Spirit is present with you in the power of Jesus. Deliver this member to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Is that the kind of power being meant here? When I come to you, if these proud people are not in shape, they will be delivered by the power of Jesus over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, which surely means no less than a terrible sickness that could kill and hopefully bring a person on their deathbed to repentance so that their spirit might be saved. Powerful things here. Is that the kind of powerful power being talked about? Or is it the power of Romans 15, 19, where Paul says, I do not presume to speak of anything that I have achieved, but only what Christ has wrought through me by the power of signs and wonders. Power of signs and wonders, Romans 15, 19. Or is it just more simply Colossians 1, 11, where Paul prays for the power for endurance and patience with joy. You know, I don't want to create the impression in anybody's mind that if you've never laid your hands on somebody for healing, there's no power in your life. It took dead, raising power to get you to believe God. And that's one of the problems with not being a Calvinist, is that you don't cherish the power of God in your life. It took omnipotent power to bring you from unbelief to belief and death to life. Omnipotent power rests upon your life right now if you're a Christian. And let us not despise the power of God that rests upon this room right now, holding us in faith. And then the last issue, you'll notice what's emerging in this text is the title of my message. Compassion power in the kingdom of God. And you'll see the compassion now that we've looked at power in the kingdom in verse 21. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? I don't think he means that the rod of rebuke and discipline would be 
unloving. I think he simply is saying, shall I come to you with disciplinary love or gentle affirming love? What kind of parent do you want me to be? A spanking parent or a hugging parent? And, of course, the answer is the latter, I'm sure. But the point I want to make is this. Look at the connection between the verses. We're moving from kingdom to power to love. And as I draw this message to a close, I want to assert loud and clear that the aim of this series and the aim of our life, the aim of this church, is love. 1 Timothy 1.5. Paul summed it all up. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a good heart, a clean conscience, and faith unfeigned. In Galatians 5.6, the only thing that avails with God is not circumcision or uncircumcision or any other outward acts of religion, but faith working through what? Love. Romans 8.13, the whole law is fulfilled in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I am a noisy, babbling, tongue-speaking gong and clanging cymbal. Though I have gifts of prophecy and know all mysteries, and knowledge, and have all faith so as to remove mountains, and have not love, I am nothing. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make no mistake of it. If the pursuit of power and the kingdom and signs and wonders is not For the pursuit of love, it is not of God. If anything results from our study and our labor, other than more effective loving unbelievers to God, more effective loving the unreached peoples into the kingdom, more effective loving of those who are bound with drugs, and depression and all manner of bondage in our society to the freedom of Christ, then we're barking up the wrong tree and going down the dead-end street. And therefore, let us pray together in these 15 weeks. Oh, let us pray that God would make us biblically faithful and biblically teachable. In Jesus' name, let's stand for closing prayer. Father, we're embarking here on, I believe, a remarkable 15 weeks as a church as we search the scriptures like the Bereans to see if these things are so. To see what is 
the gift of prophecy, to see what are the signs and wonders that might be available for your church in its witness today, to see what is the kind of spiritual warfare we as individuals and corporately and territorially should be waging. And we humble ourselves before you, realizing our great fallibility, our great susceptibility to trendiness, and just ask, O God, that we would love you and your word and be bound to your infallible, unmistakable, all-sufficient scripture to guide us in these days. If we are on our knees as a people, seeking your face in all lowliness and openness to your spirit and all allegiance to your word, we have all faith that you will guide us aright. Into your hands, we commend our spirits in this new year and new decade. And all the people said, Amen.